with your host, Spike Cullen. Yes! Yes, it's me! Oh, thank you. Oh, oh, please. Oh, thank you. Keep clapping. Keep clapping. Clap to the summer miracle. How would we know that you wanted the summer miracle if you didn't keep clapping? Welcome to my fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. We have a fantastic guest for you, unlike the previous hundred and four episodes before this, where our episode where our, our guests were they were okay. But this guest, so much better. Speaking of former guests, um, we had a, a great loss uh, today. Uh, with the uh, news that we got of the loss of my friend and, and someone that a lot of people know, John McAfee, um, who died in a Spanish prison uh, instead of by his wife's side. Um, and the reason he is dead, uh, the reason he, well, at the very least, the reason that he was in a Spanish prison was because he didn't submit to the U.S. government's uh, extortive tax system. And it's it's possible that uh, that he may have still been alive, or at the very least, he would have spent his final days by his wife Janice's side. Um, John, uh, I, uh, I, I hate that I won't get to talk to you again. Janice, I am so sorry. I, I can't, I can't, I have nothing else to say, but I'm sorry. Um, 
let us resolve ourselves to end this extortion system. Uh, this is a Muddy Waters Media production. Check us out everywhere. We are on Facebook. We are on YouTube, Instagram, Anchor, Twitter, Periscope. We're everywhere. We're on all the social media platforms. We're on all the podcasting platforms. If you want to look at or listen to things on the internet, we are on whatever that thing is. Be sure to like us, follow us, five stars, comment on this, share Hit the bell if you're on YouTube so that your phone explodes with notifications. Let me make sure. To, yeah, my phone's on mute. Uh, you want to, your phone to explode with notifications every time we go live. That's what I want for you. Be sure to help show the algorithm that you care because we care. Uh, and be sure to share this right now. The last thing I want is for you and your closest loved ones to miss out on a roughly hour-long libertarian podcast on a Wednesday e- evening. Give the gift of Spike today. Kids love it. This episode, of course, is brought to you by the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus. Now, I used to joke about this ridiculous thing and talk about how it was the fastest growing waffle-related caucus and blah, 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 blah. This is now the second largest caucus in the Libertarian Party. Let me say that again. This, this thing you're looking this is the second largest caucus in the third largest party in the United States of America, and it's the fastest growing one. It has tripled in size in membership in the last week. That's real, America, and it's your fault. If you want to become a member of the Waffle House Caucus, go to the Libertarian Party or the Facebook group Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus. And of course, if you want to buy some shirts and buttons with this ridiculous logo on it, and no, I have not gotten anyone's permission, either Waffle House's or the Libertarian Party's permission to make this thing. If you want this on a shirt or a button before someone sends me a cease or desist, go to muddywatersmedia.com store and get yours today. The Gravy King. Cumberland Cannabis Company. If you want to buy weed from Cumberland Cumberland County, Tennessee, uh, go to cumberlandcannabisco.com. They have viable, ethical, and effective weed. So you can buy weed on the internet now by going to cumberlandcannabisco.com. Joe Soloski. Joe Soloski is running to be the first libertarian governor in America. Uh, He is the key to Pennsylvania success. And if you want to help him become Pennsylvania's next governor, go to Joe Soloski, that's J-O-E-S-O-L-O-S-K-I dot com. Mudwater, the most appropriately named sponsor of Muddy Waters Media. If you woke up today and said, my God, if I have another drink, cup of coffee in my life, it's going to make me sick. I instead want to drink something that's made out of nothing but masala chai, cacao, mushrooms, turmeric, sea salt, cinnamon, and literally nothing else. Well, friends, I have some fantastic news for you. You can have all of that in a black tin every single month sent to you so that you can hold it up to a black backdrop like this guy did. Um, And this has one-seventh of the caffeine that coffee has, just enough to wake you up but not enough to get you all wired. And yet, I'm pretty wired, and I use this stuff. So, you know, results may vary. But if you want to try it out, go to muddywatersmedia.com slash mud. It tastes exactly like that would sound like, that combination of ingredients there. It's coffee alternative is, yes, that's a good description of it. Jack Casey, who has brought these two books that I refuse to read because if they're good, I'm going to feel bad about trashing it every week. And if they're bad, then I'm going to feel bad about trying to get you to buy them. The Royal Green and In Silver Throned, which is about there's a, a ring and there's a butterfly that's trying to stab you. There's a third book coming out called Crowned by Gold that I also will never read, but you should. So if you go to the royalgreen.com today, you can buy these books from possible cult leader Jack Casey. 
Jonathan Reels is running for Congress, but unfortunately, he's not even a human being. Because according to the Federal Election Committee, until he raises $5,000, he's not even a person. He's being depersoned by the Federal Election Commission. And if you want to help Jonathan Reels become a real boy, go to jonathan.cash and you can help him today. Fierce Luxury. Fierce, I don't know what this is because this is a new sport. What is it? Fierce Luxury is a high-end bag and accessories consignment store based online. They carry the hottest brands like Louis Vuitton, Chanel, Gucci, and Harem, Harem, Herms, Harem, Herm, like Hermes, Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Gucci. I know those ones. Uh, consigned with them for a 30% fee. That's 20% less than most consignment stores, I'm told, by Ashley. Find them online at FierceLuxuryByAshley.com and on Facebook in their exclusive group, Fierce Luxury by Ashley. Adderpan. Let me see what this is about. Looking for a game show to haunt your dreams? What? Look no further than Adderpan, the premier release from Irvin Games. Adderpan is a first-person Five Nights-style game featuring creepy characters, jump scares galore, and even a few Easter eggs hidden amongst the game files themselves. Join Dolly and her haunted imaginary friends as you play the role of a school security guard trying to survive the night shift armed only with a camera and a flashlight can you make it until morning before they get a piece of you jesus expansions are already in progress by the developer and will be available for free as they are released and is currently available on windows pc you can find adderpan and upcoming expansions on steam for the low low price of five dollars come come find out if you have what it takes to unravel the tale that sounds horrible horrific Well, folks, if these sponsors have caused you personal injury and you live in the state of Florida, I have some great news for you. If you go to chrisreynoldslaw.com, you can sue me for doing this to you. Personal injury attorney, Chris Reynolds, attorney at law, is the attorney to hire when you want to sue people in Florida. And I know what you're thinking. Don't say that. That's anti-Semitic. Chris Reynolds, attorney at law, chrisreynoldslaw.com. The intro and outro music to this and every episode of My Fellow Americans comes from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That's J-O-D-A-V-I. Check him out on Facebook, on SoundCloud. Go to his Bandcamp. Go to joedavimusic.bandcamp.com by his entire discography. It's like 25 bucks. It's some of the best music you'll ever hear. Go buy it today. I love his music. He's uh, actually just had a new album drop. I forget what it's called, but I listened to the whole thing. It's fantastic. joedavimusic.bandcamp.com. I'd like to thank Le Bleu. For this delicious, purified, ultra-pure water that I'm drinking on this episode episode of My Fellow Americans. It's BPA-free, non-carbonated, and kosher certified. Made in the USA, just like me. Assuming I'm BPA-free. I don't, I don't know what BPAs are, but I, I assume I don't have any of those. Thank you, Le Bleu. Shout out to Tara and Turks' mom. And as always, folks, my guest tonight is a fantastic guy. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, my guest is an ideologue who has spent years promoting the idea that states can nullify federal legislation that they don't like. The very same argument pushed by defenders of slavery and segregation. It sounds sinister. He's also the founder and director of the 10th Amendment Center. Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Americans, please welcome to the show Mr. Michael Bolden. Michael, after reading that, how, how dare you, actually? I am thoroughly entertained. That was like the best live read intro I've ever gone through. <laughs> I mean, the I'm not going to read these books, but you should. I, I'm sold by that. 
So my so what we do, what we encourage our we say if you want to be sponsored by our show, what we actually say is if you'd like for your product or service to be roasted live three <laughs> three nights a week, then come to Muddy Waters Media because that's literally what we do. We do not take our advertisers seriously. You would think that we would, but it's a proven formula. Um, and they're actually getting more sales from us than they do from other people because we we tell people basically why they shouldn't. No one things. likes boring advertisements, at least if you're making people laugh. Like now I'm like, oh, all those stupid ads I've seen scrolling through social for mud water. Oh, they've yes. kind of drawn me in and I've clicked it. So they keep showing it to me over and over again. I might actually <laughs> have to get it now. It's you know what? It's actually not bad. It's actually not bad. And thank it, you for the fifty dollars that you paid me to kind of uh, reinforce your really good uh, sponsorship skills. Well, Yes. You're welcome. I'm glad that that's already been paid and that you don't expect anything else. What are we else. doing? Thanks paid for having me, man. Paid yeah, no, I'm happy to have you on, man. Uh, you uh, are someone who, so when I told like other people in Muddy Waters Media and other people on my volunteer team, I'm like, I have Michael Bolden on. Do you have any questions for him? They fangirled so hard that they forgot to give me questions to ask you. So we have like, none. I mean, no, I'm literally I've, like that's we're going to talk about Adderpan. Like, what what are your thoughts about this? Like, we we have we have Adderpan. We have a uh, you know the five nights. What is a five night? You know, are you are you, five night style game featuring Dolly and I her mean, haunted imagination? I already downloaded it, but I figured we have to have a conversation, and I don't want to get so distracted being a school crossing guard. We Not could, do, <laughs> we could, we could, let's do a follow-up episode where we play Adderpan together on like, live, live like PewDiePie. We'll like, just do it like yeah. a PewDiePie style. Yeah, it's episode. like PewDiePie, but just for Adderpan. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So you are uh, the, uh, this is your first time on a, my fellow Americans. And whenever I have a, a guest on for the that first implies time, a second is on the way. Uh, uh, well, we're going to play Adderpan together. So yeah, yeah. I'm tell us a little you. bit about how you got to where you are uh, in, in terms of your your ideologue status, according to the SPLC. What what got, <laughs> was there any kind of like major moments, like aha moments that led you to where you are in terms of your thoughts on things? Or was it sort of war. a gradual progression over time? Like what war. what's the, the genesis? War. War. war, I mean, it's always a gradual pro uh, progression. And I look at, you know, I started my organization back in 2006 after doing a number of years of anti-war activism where I got to that point probably I think I got brought to liberty first and foremost from <laughs> from Michael Moore, <laughs> of all people. Wow. I just remember seeing this old documentary in the late 90s, and he was, uh, you know, walking around doing a book tour. And I remember him pointing up at – he was in Times Square, and he's like – he kept hammering on how the two main parties were basically the same garbage in one way or another. You know, right, I mean, they right, have right. some varying variances, but he was in Times Square and they had, I think it was Bush and maybe Bob Dole. I don't know, some monster. And uh, no, it was Clinton and Dole. And he's like, see, I can't even tell the difference between those two. And I'm like, what? This is amazing. Now, not that I'm really <laughs> in on much of the rest of the ideology, uh, right. but somehow that just got me thinking like, oh, okay, everything's kind of a mess. Uh, these people are all full of shit. They're all evil. And yeah. I just kind of started digging in. The internet brought me to Harry Brown. I used to listen to, when I was working a customer service job years ago, I used to listen to his uh, radio show, I guess we call it a 
podcast these days. I think it was right. weekly at the time, but I used to, I was literally consuming so much Harry Brown. I still go to harrybrown.org from a lot of his old articles, his mm. September 12th article talking yes. about, you know, why do they hate us? This was transformational uh-huh. for me. So, you know, starting, I, I decided to start getting active on some stuff. And I had volunteered with a Palestinian right to return organization called the Al-Awda, A-W-D-A, because I just, that was, for whatever reason, that's where I got in. I saw injustice and I wanted to do something about it. Uh, Mm. My volunteer efforts didn't go real far there. And then, of course, the Iraq war in 2003 started and the night that those bombs started dropping, I was out in the streets at a protest in front of the federal building here in Los Angeles, almost getting run over by some cop, uh, watching tracked armored vehicles showing up to break up the crowd. And that was really my motivation. For me, it's always been about war. And over time, I just recognized the people that I was marching in the streets with, who I still will today, if there were anyone doing it, really, unfortunately, they're all gone. They -hmm. weren't really anti-war. They were stop the war so we have more money to pay for more social programs, more health care, more education. And honestly, even though I don't want government involved in any of that stuff, I can actually sympathize with the idea of if you're going to spend this money, spend it on something other than murdering people. So I can yeah. sympathize no, with I get that, that. To a point. I, get, I get that argument. Yeah, yeah. But like over time, I just kind of got tired of, well, why can't we just be anti-war? So uh, I decided after a few years, it was 2006, mid-2006, I'm like, ah, you know, I had come across this website, First Amendment Center. Sounds kind of familiar, right? And I'm like, you know, there should be some other amendment centers. So I bought domain names for the Fourth Amendment Center, the Fifth Amendment Center, and the Tenth Amendment Center. And I just started blogging. My goal was just to start sharing some thoughts, my uneducated own vision on things regarding the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, and the Tenth as the line in the sand pointing out that, oh, everything that they they do, they're not really authorized in the first place. Or even if they are, they're lying about how much it's going to cost or unintended consequences and all that other garbage. And the one that kind of caught on really was 10th Amendment Center, and here we are today. I have that featured profile page. Now, some people have a Southern Poverty Law Center listing to just say, oh, these are the scary people. I have a full profile page uh, for about 10 years now. They've loved me for that long. Wow. So it's a badge of honor, I guess. It's fascinating because they included me in this 30 Leaders of the Radical Right publication in their Hate Watch uh, publication some years ago. And I don't know. I mean, we haven't really hung out much other than a few minutes in in Denver at the convention recently and now. But I think it's pretty obvious that I'm not some weird right winger at all. Right. And it was I had done it. Anyone who follows you can see that you're uh, you're a libertarian who's applying an amendment that's ostensibly supposed to limit government to conversations about why we need to be limiting government power and what unlimited government looks like. That's not far right. That's that's just common sense at this point. Yeah, I guess, you know, really when you get down to it, and I've had uh, people from the Bush administration come out and do an op-ed against us, uh, talking about us as the ACLU wing of the Tea Party some years ago because we opposed <laughs> National Defense Authorization Act and indefinite detention, which is absolutely disgusting. Of course, right. the right has often hated our work on legalization efforts, on restricting police, things like right. that. The left yeah. doesn't like us, well, when the left is in power. It really just changes who's in charge. In my Twitter profile, right. I say, some 
something like, you know, I'm a, a commie or I'm a libtard, depending on who has uh, control of power in Washington, D.C. Right. And that's the way it's always been. Uh, but SPLC, they did this thing saying, oh, this guy's one of the leaders of the radical right. And Mother Jones, it was kind of cool. Uh, they actually did an article defending me on this, saying like, okay, maybe we're not on board with everything this guy has to say, but, you know, you can't be a pro-pot, anti-war kind of a libertarian type of a person and really be right. part of the radical right. So uh, that was kind of cool to see. But I, I keep it there as a badge of honor. People used to say, you know, just sue, sue the Southern Poverty Law Center, right? And their $60 million endowment from here in my apartment with no pants on. I'm not going to pull that off. But at first I thought about ignoring it. But I decided to just embrace it because when the establishment people hate you, you've got to be doing something right. And it's not just the establishment people at SPLC. We've gotten it from Mark Levin on the right, the Southern Poverty Law, I mean, yep. Southern Poverty Law Center, Heritage Foundation. Across the political spectrum, Rachel Maddow did uh, a 10-minute segment on us some years ago, a full 10-minute segment to talk about these nullifier people. They're they're basically trying to resurrect John Calhoun's Confederacy. They're neo-Confederate, wow. pro-slavery monsters. And they even scrolled through our website, but someone on the graphic team cut out the first part of the website as they were scrolling through our nullification efforts. They cut out the pro-marijuana legalization part because they were trying to present a certain story. Wow. That is amazing. First of all, I told you to put your pants on for this show, so I'm a little upset already. But second of all, I, I, I want to say... Um, is this where Rage Against the Machine comes in about pants, though? Rage Against the Machine no. talked about pants? Fuck you, I won't do what you told me. Oh, oh, I thought they did a song about pants. I'm like, wow, that's I wish. I really specific. That's the most specific Rage Against the Machine song. Um, <laughs> Caitlin I've Cloven been... over on Facebook, who is an awesome human being, says, I will start the Third Amendment Center. Yes, that's pretty that's amazing. What, that's what I was literally about to say. What, you know, I wanted, I, I wish I could go back in time and be like the Third Amendment warrior. And, you know, like, I would be really, like, militant about it. And I drive around and, like, raise my fist. Shall not be quartered. Like, you know, like, really be into it. And the fact yeah. is, it's not come up yet. But I'll be ready when it does. Yeah, and I'll be well, like, someone's I got to get that domain. You, you got to. I, I would imagine someone already domain. has it. So you have been told you. I you know when I did just brief reading uh, about you, I was you know I saw that you were both a you know communist sympathizer who wants to you know take away our protections from the thugs and savages that want to destroy us, uh, and that you're also a neo confederate who wants to bring back slavery and segregation. I feel like maybe there's some happy medium between there that you occupy. Tell us about the Tenth Amendment Center. Is there a happy what... medium between two evils? <laughs> I guess. Okay, yeah, cool. Uh, what do we? What am I telling you about Tenth Amendment in general? Tenth Amendment Center. Well, no, the Tenth Amendment Center. What? What it is precisely that you? What the? What your purpose is for that foundation for that center? Okay. Uh, I'm going to, you know, just cite kind of an old revolutionary, this guy named Samuel Adams, and the way he put it, the way he described it, it's from this letter that he wrote in 1771-ish. Uh, he basically said the truth is all could be free if they valued freedom and defended it as they ought. I'm paraphrasing, but that's pretty close. But basically, the notion here is you can't just only 
learn about freedom, learn about liberty. You can't just understand and appreciate it. You also have to know how to advance it. So it's a one-two punch. If you love liberty, you want freedom, you understand it, you value it. If you don't know how to get from point A, where we are today, living under the largest government, the largest empire in the history of the world, don't let those right-wingers who tell you you have to vote for the their team, Team Red, to stop the Chinese communists because the U.S. federal government spends somewhere between seven and nine times the amount as the Chinese government does with one-third right. the population. This is the largest government in history. So how do we get from point A to point B? Liberty, freedom. And so we do this kind of a combination where we do a lot of education, not just on natural rights, not just on liberty, on the structure of the Constitution. But how do you actually defend that? If the Constitution is going to be the line in the sand, even though we know, and I know we're going to talk about Spooner a little bit, yeah. words on paper don't defend themselves. They can't enforce right. themselves. And expecting to them to is actually pretty foolish. So what can we, the people, what can individuals do to advance liberty in the face of a government that doesn't want it liberty to advance on almost anything, whether it's a menthol cigarette or a plant or a firearm or conquering other countries, or ripping people off, printing money, devaluing right. things. I mean, it's almost endless. I mean, Joe Biden's new budget, and, you know, I mean, not just, he's the current guy. I used to get right. complaints, even from our members sometimes. Why do you guys hammer on Donald Trump so much? Well, because he was the head dude of the largest government in the history of the world. And I'm a yeah. constitutional organization that I run. That means 90, 95% of the stuff they do, they shouldn't be doing. So no one who's in that organization is honestly a good person in my books. You don't participate with the empire. You try to resist it, reject it, nullify it, and bring it down at every turn. That's what you do when you love liberty. So uh, Biden's budget, I think he's actually doubling the amount of federal funding for the so-called COPS program. This yeah. is a federal nationalization of police, basically handing out money. Then this kind of gets local law enforcement to focus on federal priorities. And so this is these are not good people, whether you're from the left or the right. If you want to deal with stuff, our view is the best way forward, no matter what your view is, is decentralization and localism. I would give the same argument to a socialist, to someone on the other side, what's the right term? I don't know what these days. And then to libertarians. When you want to accomplish something, forget the 202 area code even exists. Those people are not on your side unless yeah. you happen to be you know, with them. Then they'll do what you want. But otherwise, if you want to accomplish something, you have to do it locally or in your state. Yeah, if if they are on your side, you're probably one of the baddies. Like you're probably a bad guy. <laughs> if you don't want, if you if they're on your side, we probably hate you. Um, yeah. And I like I like that you're focusing on what we need to do as opposed to just saying, well, it says here you're supposed to do this. Okay, you know, yeah. for example, here here's the exact wording of the Tenth Amendment. Uh, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited it nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. In other words, 28 words, pretty straightforward stuff, right? Right. In other words, if, words. The, if the constitution doesn't explicitly say the federal government should be doing this, then they shouldn't be doing it. 
Yeah. Well, that's not what happened, right? That's not where we are. We now, like you said, have the biggest, most expensive, arguably most or definitely one of the most destructive and infringing governments in human history, which started with what ostensibly was supposed to be an exercise in constitutionally limited government. I need you to explain right now what the hell happened. Benjamin Franklin on the last day of the Philadelphia Convention back in 1787, and I don't know his exact words, but he you could find it. LibertyFund.org has all those debates in the in the conventions on the state and in Philadelphia as well. But Franklin, he basically said, okay, you know, this is the republic if you can keep it conversation. But before yes. that, in the convention, he specifically said, I figure this is going to be well administered for a number of years but it can only end in despotism. But he was on board because he's like, we got to do something now. Let's just get things rolling. And then if we're just going to leave it to people, we're going to leave it to things just to play out the way they should. It's not going to play out too nicely. So we were kind (laughs) of warned about this. James Madison and Federalist 48 specifically told us multiple times that what he called a mere demarcation on parchment, literally a parchment barrier is what many of the leading founders considered the constitution. It needs something other than the limits, the separation of powers on paper to actually protect the less powerful from the more feeble, from the more powerful people in government. Right. Something else has to happen. And what is that something else? Well, we could, I mean, I could list quote after quote after quote, but just, to, you know, maybe one, for example, James Iredell. This is in the North Carolina ratifying convention. He was actually nominated to the Supreme Court by George Washington, one of the first guys to serve there, a top legal mind of the time. He specifically says when the government usurps power, usurp, exercises power that's not delegated to it, which is constantly, right? right? If we're talking about surveillance, prohibition yeah. on plants and guns, unconstitutional wars, all their programs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It happens constantly. What did he say was the response? He didn't say, oh, the people will vote the bums out. No, he specifically said the people must resist. There has to be a resistance. Resistance, not like resistance of choosing one party or another, but actual resistance. Thomas Jefferson in his Kentucky Resolutions, his first draft of the Kentucky Resolutions of 1798, he specifically said when government does maladministration, again, I'm paraphrasing, when they exercise powers in ways that you don't like, The change of the people in government is the constitutional remedy. So when they're just doing bad policy, vote the bums out. But when they exercise powers not delegated to them, it has to be a nullification, a level of resistance on a state, local, and individual level. And that, I think, is something that's been missing all along. Most people say, oh, they do something I don't like. Let's go to the federal courts in the hopes that the federal courts are going to somehow limit federal power. Let's right. vote the bums out in the hopes that the new bums say, oh, all this power you've you know left on the plate for me, I don't want it. So most people, when they see things happen in Washington, D.C., they're basically relying on the entity that is doing the bad stuff in the first place to somehow change course and stop doing the stuff that has already been doing that it gave itself the power to do and that's going to somehow play out well well that's why we live under the largest empire in the history of the planet yeah do you know what this hen house needs new foxes better foxes good foxes we need good foxes in this hen house 
Uh, this is this is a problem. And I mean, we can get into the specifics of how, you know, a lot of this started with just a perversion of the commerce clause to mean anything, you know, oh, it says regulate commerce. Therefore, we should be able to tell people whether they can come here or not or whether you should be able to own. Yeah. But but the reality is and and, and yeah, besides being, I guess, boring. Well, this show is often boring. So sorry. Uh, But but in addition to that, I talk about this stuff all the time, but I can joke about it. But but here's the thing. It doesn't matter how they did it. They did yes. it. They looked at the rules and went, "Now nah, I'm do what I want anyway." And so they just did it, and because they have the power to do so, and that's that. People are like you said; they're relying on a mechanism that was designed to create that power. You know, we just saw this with the umpteenth time that the Supreme Court has looked their defendants and and plaintiffs and the American people in the fla- face and said, "Yeah, this tax and mandate in Obamacare are completely unconstitutional." We're oh, going to keep man. it going anyway, because what what, uh, what are you going to do? What are you going to do, guys? Like, man, what are you going to do? This is so what we heard. Keep it. 2010, 2010 I, I gave a presentation in Fort Worth, Texas, and I said, you know, uh, this is, uh, you know, the, this is obviously going to go to the Supreme Court, right? And I'm like, you know, the Supreme Court may have an opinion on Obamacare, but let them come and enforce it because the Supreme Court can't enforce their opinions, right? right so really, right. it is incumbent upon the people, the cities and the states especially on the Affordable Care Act, something which really relies on cooperation, just like everything else between federal right. and state governments. The yep. In one of these so-called fake shutdowns, I think it was 2013, they always like to call it a shutdown, but the military industrial complex never shuts down, the police it, state never shuts down, yeah. the surveillance yeah. state never stops. So it's never really a shutdown. It's just a, some political scam that they're they pulling on us the to parks, shut down yeah. parks, right? Yeah, they close the but, parks, yeah. During one of these shutdowns, National Governors Association was very alarmed with what's going on. And they put out a press release talking about this. They said states are partners with the federal government on most federal programs. The dirty little secret that none of these people who love the monster state want us to know is that partnerships don't work too well when half the team quits. So when the federal government, for example, wants to require localities to help the federal government enforce federal immigration law, and then they don't do that, we can see there was actually just a study released just last November at uh, PNAS, uh, National Academy of Sciences, uh, that talked about how immigration sanctuary cities, immigration sanctuary states, by merely saying we're not going to participate in enforcement and removal operations in some areas, and in other areas, they're literally just not participating in a very narrow program called 287G, basically holding people in prison beyond their release date, which is what the DHS wants them to do, right? Yeah. Literally just doing this has caused a 30 to 50 percent reduction in deportations. So a hands-off, non-compliance, Rosa Parks approach is incredibly effective because the federal government relies on the states to help enforce stuff. ICE, in their annual enforcement and removal removal operations report every year, ERO report, they specifically cite these jurisdictions that don't help enforce federal immigration law. We've seen the same thing happen. Connecticut just this week just became the 18th state to legalize cannabis for recreational purposes. 18 states for recreational, another 18 with medical. 36 states, people and states, 36 states are saying to the federal government who still considers this plant illegal all the time in every at situation highest, at the highest level too, not of just course. illegal, but Supreme like at the, Court, it's, 2005, at like heroin, yeah. 
Gonzalez versus Rach, they basically took the position that poor Angel Rach, who I think is a hero, there should be a street named after her. She had a, a massive a cancer tumor, cancerous tumor in her brain, and her doctor recommended cannabis to help treat it, at least alleviate the symptoms. Now, many years later, this was back in early 2000s. These days, we're starting to see some studies, and this is not really my field, but we're starting to see some studies that cannabis can maybe even eat some cancer cells. So she's still alive today. Maybe that's why. But she was told, you know, you should probably try using cannabis. And what did they do? Her and her caregiver, uh, Diane Monson, they had six plants growing in Diane's backyard. They never bought them, brought them across state lines. They never bought or sold them. They were given the seeds, growing at home, consuming them in their own backyard. And what happened? The federal government, the DEA, with the local sheriff's department, a partnership, as always, they came to her house, stomped out those six plants. Can you imagine what that was like? It was basically like, I don't give a shit about your stupid yeah. cancer. I got supremacy clause that die. says. Yep. Yep. Just evil. But so she went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled against her. They ruled against. They said, look, it doesn't matter. If you grow it in your backyard, you consume it in your own home, this is somehow interstate commerce, even if you've never bought or sold it. Clarence Thomas, who I sometimes agree with, oftentimes do not, just like all these Supreme Court people. He was actually very correct when he says if the federal government's interstate commerce power is six plants in someone's backyard, their commerce power is limitless. And I think he was absolutely correct when it came to that. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And perfect example. The government does not care about the limitations of any of any of the amendments. I mean, we know that they don't care about first or second or it seems like the third. They're largely they've decided there's better ways to. Well, some people will tell you the police state and all that federal funding is kind of a standing army today. I don't know. That's technically that's correct, but it makes a lot of sense to me. It makes a lot of sense. It's fair. It's fair. And and so they ignore the Constitution constantly, constantly. And yet we're seeing, you know, the people I love that the people that are like, nullify you must want segregation and slavery even though you've said neither <laughs> what you've talked about are things like how state and immigration local and weed <laughs> we immigration and weed like how how especially with cannabis right cannabis is effectively legal to most people now yes that is that is what has happened it's it's not legal to sell across state lines and there's still a lot of restrictions and things like that but it's effectively for day-to-day use cannabis is now legal for the majority of americans i live in south carolina where they will straight up put you in jail for a long time for it but most americans at this point you know with california and decriminalizations in places like uh massachusetts and 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 other and and other large states the majority of people now live where uh, weed is either legal or or decriminalized to the point of effectively being legal while the federal government still continues to say nope this thing is as bad as heroin you aren't allowed to do research with it you aren't allowed to own it you aren't allowed to consume it uh you know we don't even believe that they, they still have hemp illegal and and well, the hemp vast majority actually, of say, hemp is legal now on a federal level but that's, 17 that's right. yeah. states previously legalized it before this farm bill was signed a few years ago, I'm surprised yeah. that Trump actually signed it. Hemp is legal, but it is still illegal to put it into food products. Although I can go that, down to a coffee yeah. shop right here in downtown L.A. and find hemp infused CBD infused coffee all day long. I can find CBD infused foods and teas and I can find THC infused all kinds of stuff. So this is another great example of nullification and in, in action is 
You know, when yeah. enough people in enough states decide to do something when the federal government says they can't, eventually the federal government has to back off just to save face. That's basically what I had to say somewhere around 2014 or so in a video talking about how the people in the states found the winning path when it came to cannabis. And this is something that we should replicate on almost everything else. We're starting to see this, and I've been pushing for this since about 2010 or so. We're starting to see this on the right to keep and bear arms. We just have just this year yep, five Missouri states and, that are starting yep. to take this move. There was some reporting on this. Uh, they did an interview with me uh, at Reason Magazine recently in an article, and Jacob Sullum just did a follow-up there at Reason just this morning talking about how, look, the federal government, based on this well, we can get back to James Madison, Federalist 46. He told us, well, what's going to happen if the federal government doesn't follow these rules? Well, what do you do about it? He did not say vote the bums out. He did not say sue in court. He did not say any of that. He said a refusal to cooperate with officers of the union. His words, not mine. This has been reaffirmed by the Supreme Court in something called the Anti-Commandeering Doctrine in a series of five major cases from 1842. This is Prigg versus Pennsylvania. It's a yeah. Fugitive Slave Act case where the federal government tried to commandeer all the northern states to act like slave catchers to catch yeah. runaway slaves and send them back into bondage in the south. And they all said, we're not participating in this. They took it to court. They won. The federal government held that you cannot, even if they're going to say, well, we can do whatever we want, they can't require yep. states, localities to help them out. And the most recent case was a sports betting case in New Jersey in 2018. And Samuel Alito, of all people, specifically says, you know, a greater affront to our system can is not easier to imagine than the federal government telling a state legislature what it can or cannot do even if their actions conflict with federal law. So the anti-commandeering doctrine is incredibly powerful. That's why we have immigration sanctuary cities. That's yep. why when Donald Trump aggressively tried to pursue them, he got his ass kicked repeatedly in court. I had an article that I wrote for The Hill right after his first executive order. It's probably early 2017, right off the bat on this. I said, look, this is, this is the legal principle. This is what they're doing. They're just taking a hands-off approach. If they just hold fast, it doesn't matter what the federal government does. They're going to win on the ground and in court. That's how it's played out. Now we're starting to see the same thing happen on the right to keep and bear arms in Missouri just on the 12th of this month. After eight years of us working on this, they passed something called the Second Amendment Preservation Act, House Bill 85. Yeah. Basically, yeah. this bans the state and its political subdivisions, local communities, from participating in the enforcement of most federal gun control past, present, and future. Arizona also has a very similar law that will be going into effect in August, where they're banning the state from enforcing any federal gun control that isn't on the books in Arizona. Now, Arizona has their own gun control problems. Now they have to start repealing them on a state level. Texas has a new law where they're saying just on sound suppressors or what they like to call silencers, they repealed the state restrictions on silencers. And then at the same time, they said, we're not going to enforce any federal restrictions on silencers that don't have concurrent laws on a state level. And then Montana and Idaho are saying, if there's any new federal gun control from the Biden administration, it's kind of partisan, but we'll take it for now. We won't <laughs> participate in that. So we're starting to see this thing catch on in some other areas. And I like to see it catch on in many, many more. 
Yeah, it's it is a it's I hope it's the the foot in the door to the idea that instead of constantly running to DC where we're not being heard. If you're not a multi-billion dollar lobbying organization, you're not going to get anywhere in DC in any real way. Uh or if you're uh you know, uh, unless you're in I mean, we just saw there was a major movement last year whether you agree with it or not. In the midst of COVID, there was this massive movement of people saying among other things, we want police accountability, we want an end to the war on drugs Mm -hmm. Uh, some of them were even calling for reparation like there were all these things that were being called for and the response from the political establishment is you have to choose from donald trump or the architect of every policy you're protesting right now and his vp one of the most brutal enforcers of those policies someone who laughed about uh, putting truant mothers or putting mothers in jail because their teenage children were truant from school so she's having uh, rounding up working single mothers who didn't even know where their kids were and throwing them in prison and if they had yeah. priors they were in prison for even longer because they didn't realize that their teenage kids weren't at school she laughed about this and this is who they looked at the american people and said uh yeah but she's a black woman and look she's wearing timberlands you go chick and then and and that makes it okay this is what the political establishment gives us you know in the midst of being told we want to see an end to police uh, um, uh, qualified immunity civil asset forfeiture the war on drugs cash bail all these different things their response is uh yeah um juneteenth is now a holiday like this is the nonsense oh, a that holiday we get from that we're going to rush through so fast that yep. it's to the point of being disrespectful that the USPS yep. posts on their website. I had to go to the post office over the weekend, and I'm like, oh, I should look it up. They had a whole page saying, we don't have the capability of being able – I mean, the Postal Service, this is a government agency. They're terrible in the first place. But they're like, we can't shut down in 24 to 48 hours. It's almost like you didn't even give it the due respect that it no. deserves. No. And no. it's just political grandstanding. But all these yeah. things that you're talking about, ending qualified immunity, the drug war militarization of police, asset forfeiture, all this stuff can be ended on a state level, whether the federal government wants us to or not. Qualified Mm -hmm. immunity is a federal program. Well, federal program. It is a judicial invention. It was created out of thin air by the Supreme Court. And then through something called the incorporation doctrine, which I know many people in Mm -hmm. the legal world will love. And we could argue about that some other time. But it's basically been enforced on all 50 states. So whenever someone violates someone's rights as a cop, kills them, beats them, whatever it may be, and you sue, you're basically going to federal court. And in federal yep. court, they've created a, a just an insurmountable hurdle where no yep. one is yep. held accountable. So in Colorado, New Mexico, some people would say Connecticut, I disagree, but Colorado and New Mexico, they've now created a process where you can take that case to state court and it specifically says qualified immunity is not a defense under this section. That doesn't mean the judges are going to be good, but they've created a mechanism where qualified immunity can be just an end run around it. There's a bill that was just filed in Ohio. I think it's House Bill 332 that's up for consideration. They have a full year session there in Ohio, which is kind of weird. Same here in California. Uh, So there's movement on that, on asset forfeiture, civil asset forfeiture. Just this year, Arizona starts to require a criminal conviction before they can take people's stuff. They had already opted out of the federal equitable sharing program. Is your audience familiar with equitable sharing, you think? Uh, This is from civil asset forfeiture. We've we've touched on it before. Yeah, yeah. 
So equitable sharing, the brief version is even if you restrict the state from participating in civil asset forfeiture, there's a federal program. Here in California, it was notorious for this. There was very good restrictions on asset forfeiture on the state level, but the feds have this equitable sharing program. So all they have to do is say, oh, uh, well, this looks like a federal case. Let's call it the ATF or the DEA or some other agency that shouldn't exist. And then they do what's called adoption. The federal government takes the case. The local government still does all the legwork on the ground. The local cops do it. The feds take all the money, and then they divvy out 80% to the locals. So even if you end civil asset forfeiture on a state level, the the cops are going to continue doing it with the feds almost constantly. We saw this in North Carolina. We've seen this in uh, here in California and elsewhere. So now there's, I think, nine states that have opted out between 70 to 85% of federal equitable sharing program funding, which is actually a real positive move. It's California, Utah, Arizona, Nebraska, uh, New Mexico, Colorado, I think Ohio. But so these types of things are happening. And of course, in Oregon, for example, they just had a bill signed into law where they're basically saying, we're We're not going to participate in a large swath, not all of it, but at least a step forward of the federal 1033 militarization program. This is this program where the Pentagon hands out all kinds of crap to locals. A lot of people will tell you this is just old gear from foreign wars, which is bad enough, but that's nonsense. The ACLU did a really good report on this, which showed that about 30% of it is brand new. So this is definitely definitely a handout, and it's brand new equipment. But Oregon, Montana, and a number of other states are saying, we're not going to participate in at least all of this. And I think that's a step forward. It's a step forward that is not happening, waiting on Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Bill Clinton or who is the other guy, Bush, any of these people, Obama, none of these people ever end this stuff. They always see the previous administration as a floor and continue moving forward with more and more power, more and more empire. And I am rambling. I'm sorry, man. This is... No, this, this is stuff. good stuff. This, so I literally, I was hoping to be able to take a nap. Like if you were going to go like another <laughs> couple, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to, this guy's got the show. Wake me up and I'm going to say, hey, folks, thanks so much for tuning into this amazing episode. No, you're 100% this, correct. This episode and, is sponsored by the Third Amendment Center. The Third Amendment Center shall not be quartered. Um, so <laughs> yeah. the uh, the the thing with the, the uh, military surplus program we often talk about the equipment. That's bad enough. They're yes. getting training for this use of this yes. equipment. They're getting military training from military contractors for military equipment with only with explicitly military purposes. And yes. then with that training and equipment in their heads, they're being unleashed on our communities and being told that there's yes. a war in the streets against the thugs and the drug cartels and everything else. And they go out wound up and then we're shocked when there's these increases in, in shooting. And then we told them that they're not going to be held accountable accountable in any real way if they do anything wrong and then we're shocked when they kill ever they want whenever they want during the blm protest last year i was in the middle of a move I mean, I'm I'm living on the same street that I was at the time, but I did get some pandemic pricing, which means I got like $900 a month off of an apartment moving oh, nice. at the end of May 2020, which is amazing. But I moved right during – I didn't know it was right going to be that bad. That, yeah. yeah, Literally in the middle of it. And within the first three days – of this. I'm out on my balcony looking out. We're a block and a half from LAPD headquarters. So we're right in the midst of this oh, wow. partner, Sarah and I. I look out the window and the, all I see is a SWAT team and there's a some kind of, I'm not really sure what it was, but 
there it was, some firearm pointing right at my face. Luckily, I dodged back. But my instinct is when I see cops is run because I'm afraid of them. To be honest with you, right. when they're unaccountable and they're basically doing stuff like this all the time. And mind you, we're not even talking about the problem that is joint state-federal task forces. There are about 500 of these things around the country. They operate under something called MOUs or MOAs, Memorandum of Agreement or Memorandum of Understanding. Sorry, I got that backwards. Uh, where state and local law enforcement agencies are basically sending officers to act as federal agents. So even if you restrict them from participating in, for example, no-knock warrants or chokeholds right. or things like that, they will oftentimes claim, well, we're not actually a local police officer anymore. I'm part of a federal task force, so these state or local restrictions don't have any impact on me. And so that's a whole nother problem. Some localities, I think San Francisco may have been one of the first, are starting to opt out of some of these terrorism task forces, which is a very positive step but i think that we're a very far away we're far off from actually seeing that happen in a large scale i would imagine so and but that's the work that you're doing is to work towards that now how much more or less effective do you think you'd be if you wore pants way less by like 80 90 percent is it it's that freeing no one wants to see me in pants i saw you in pants and i wasn't i was well you didn't want you I weren't you impressed at all. I wasn't underwhelmed, but I wasn't over. I was just, I was whelmed. So, so one, you know, it, it, talking about, so then I'm assuming that Dude, I love you're you. not, I absolutely love you. <laughs> I am assuming that you, you are not into this, you know, article five convention of States thing where basically no. the, the state legislatures are going to go in and they're going to put at the end of all of the different amendments, but this time we mean it or whatever it is they think they're going to do. I mean, let's say you could come up with some amendment that would actually be better or that would clarify uh, the Commerce Clause or general welfare or something like that. Right, Over right, time, right. I mean, Benjamin Franklin uh, signed on to the Constitution in Philadelphia, and he, even he said, you know, after a number of years, this is going to end in a despotism. Even right, he's like, right. well, let's we got to live right now. But in the long run. John Dickinson, penman of the revolution, he warned us all artful rulers will always try to give their actions as much legality as possible. So it doesn't matter what words you put on paper. Sooner or later, they're going to find a way to expand their power, fit what they do. No one goes out there and says, you know, we got to bomb Syria or we got to have this Affordable Care Act or we need this right. drug war, or this gun prohibition. Uh, but it's illegal. But we're going to do it anyways. No, no, no. They all claim that it's legal. They'll continue doing that. That, so mm -hmm. that is one issue that I have with that approach. I don't think it's a really smart strategy, even if you could get something good. The other thing that I have a problem with is it takes dozens of states and it takes dozens of states where all the states are filled with really crappy politicians that are absolutely horrible on almost everything when it comes to liberty. Why would we trust these politicians to do the right thing in a large scale? If they call a convention, I don't know. I don't I just I just don't trust politicians, period. I don't think we should ever trust them, even if we think they're a good person, because it's the old power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely maxim. Abigail Adams called it, said she said power is ever grasping. Whenever they have power, they're always going to want more. And you think a bunch of politicians now. from a bunch of red states are going to somehow limit government power? They don't limit their own power on the state level. They're happy to have a police state and prohibition and all this other garbage. Well, 
I just don't I don't understand it. I think it's primarily the the push on that generally comes from uh, kind of the Tea Party crowd, the red yeah. state crowd, and maybe they're okay with a lot of uh, violations of liberty as long as it's gen- just done by their team. I don't know. I haven't looked in it that deeply, though, on the actual I, I grassroots. Th- I think that it is kind of this, like, we found one simple trick, like this sort of this yeah. thing, belief that I, I think this is what happens when you're raised on Disney movies. You think that there's this plot device that's going to fix everything at the last minute when all hope is lost. Yeah. You know, I, I and I, by the way, my name Spike is because I watched the My Little Pony movie when I was three years old. Now, keep in mind when you're listening to this story, I was three years old. So just the fact that I was even at the My Little Pony movie, okay? Three years old, all right? And I watch that, you know, in I don't even remember the exact part of the story, but basically there was like this evil wizard or whatever that's just destroying everything, and there's this little diminutive shy dragon named Spike. And at the very last minute, when all hope is lost, all the ponies are about to get freaking massacred or whatever the hell is about to happen, he turns into this big massive dragon, solves everything, fixes the whole world. That's basically uh, what these different things are. Fantasy. They're like this... There's this like, I found this secret thing in the Constitution that gives us the ability to fix it all without having to get pants on. It's a, a lot of it is not putting pants on. And it's, you know, without having to go outside or go and advocate for anything or go to your city hall or go to your or state put your neck on the line or put and your neck on the line. Put your yeah. neck every. And I used to say it years ago. But it, now it's so common. I used to say, you know, the next time you see someone lighting a joint up in public, pat them on the back for being a hero because they are helping us all. They're helping us establish the practice, the 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 approach, the path to move liberty forward, whether on that issue or on something else. And it's so important to encourage people to defy these these unjust, immoral, unconstitutional, illegal, whatever you want to call them, so-called laws. I think a lot of people really do. I think you're right. They live in this fantasy. They think, oh, just one more Supreme Court opinion and the Affordable okay. Care Act is going to be gone. It's going to fix it. And it's it just over. never seems to play out like that. And none of the founders actually said this. And again, if, you know, if James Madison himself is telling us like look mere demarcation of words on parchment is not enough to do the job there has to be something else and he told us a refusal to cooperate with officers of the union that doesn't mean you just have to go willy-nilly just go crazy and start defying everything you have to have smart strategy jefferson said you know the ground of liberty is to be gained by inches so every single step forward we talk about legalization of cannabis for example but really what we're doing is we're paying a tax tribute to the state government to be able to you know get the feds off of our back or you know many ways just to not be arrested by the state for just making a purchase at a business so that's a step forward. But if we stop with that, we really aren't being libertarian, are we? We have to keep pushing forward for more and more and more. Here in California, it's clearly not a perfect place, but we have a 50-year history of resistance to prohibition on a state, a federal, a local level. You could we could look at things like the big top cannabis supermarket run by Dennis Perone, the great hero who passed away some years ago, uh, who ran the big top cannabis super, supermarket, the San Francisco Cannabis Buyers Club. Even when it was illegal on a state level, they raided him, they shut him down. He got out of jail. He opened up. He did it again. They raided him. They shut him down. He kept doing it over and over and over and over until enough people were on board. He had somewhere between eight and 10,000 members before they even had medical marijuana here in California. California. And that actually was part of the groundswell that got the ball rolling on the state level, because states are also pretty freaking evil. 
And the only way they change is when there's so much pressure on them to do something that they don't have another choice politically. So it really starts with individual action. It starts with individuals on a large scale willing to exercise their rights, whether government wants them to or not. And eventually, maybe you can get one level of government to take a bit of a stand against another level of government. And that pushes things forward again. But we have to keep going forward and forward and forward our entire life. I mean... Kind of sucks. You got to just but keep pushing. No, we got to Here, do. Here's an example of that. Caitlin Cloven is talking about the work that is happening in uh, a group called Accountability Now Ohio. They are working to. I actually spoke at their at their press conference uh, last month, um, and they're working to end qualified immunity. Uh, Excellent. In, uh, they, they have an amendment to do that. They're also working on ending cash bail. Uh, the bill number, called- just quickly, just while I'm thinking, it's House Bill 332 for people in Ohio. Let me see if I've got that right. That is also. It, I know they may be doing an amendment. I'm not familiar with that. Group, yeah, this is. But there this is, is also an amendment. Yeah, this is a, a so there is a bill amendment. from a guy named Representative Thomas West that was filed at the beginning of June, House Bill 332, which would create a process to do an end run around this qualified immunity mess that is the federal court system and allow people a process on a state level. Basically, the same type of an idea. Anyways, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, 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 that's good. And uh, there's a uh, uh, another group called For All Tennessee. They just were successfully able to end no-knock raids in uh, in Tennessee as well yes. as uh, put in a, a uh, what is called a statewide uh, duty to intervene. So it's now a, a, a felony for a police officer to witness another police officer breaking the law and not, yeah, not stop them. So now if you're recording, you're out there recording and watching the cops, you know, brutalize oh, someone, that can be used wow. as evidence that these people didn't, that they, that they committed a felony. And that if they passed know what the laws in Tennessee, are, Tennessee, it passed unanimous, almost unanimously. I was blown away because we followed the we do a lot of work on no knock warrants. Uh, for example, yeah. we just uh, supported a, a piece of legislation that got signed in the law in Connecticut as well. And we were following this Tennessee thing. And I'm like, there's no chance. And that yeah. passed super easy too. maybe one vote against it. I'm blown away. Was this a, a grassroots thing that happened? What was the group? It was. It's called For All Tennessee, and they're they are not explicitly libertarians, but it's a bunch of libertarians who, who started. They in just Tennessee, did a bunch of awesome shit, right? Yeah. No, this is the kind of stuff that happens. Now, talk to us a little bit about because a lot of people are saying in in the comments they're saying things like, "Okay, well, uh, federal politicians, state politicians, what's the difference? Why is it important for suck. us to be focusing on citywide and statewide politicians as opposed to federal ones? Like, why is that the important thing there?" Well, first of all, the uh, federal politicians are all monsters. And at best, you're just going to get something really bad. They're out murdering people around the world, spying on everybody, taking people in, throwing people into cages. And then they're trying to coerce the states to do all this stuff for them. Now, on a more local level, they all suck as well. The state politicians are evil. The local politicians are generally all evil. I know there's an L in Wyoming, uh, maybe another one in Vermont or something like that. There's a few decent people. Even some people from the quick aside. You know what? I, I love the LP. You know why? It's the drama in the LP. <laughs> has prevented me from finishing watching The Handsmaid's Tale. I mean, when I want to watch wow. drama, I literally get on Twitter or on Facebook, uh, and I see yeah. who's mad at who for being the worst human being on Earth. But as someone yeah. who works with the horrible, 
evil politicians that are Republicans and Democrats. I would take, if you're, for example, a libertarian socialist and you think a Mises caucus member is the worst person on earth, trust me, they're, they're going to be way better on something than yeah. any Republican or Democrat that I work with on a day-to-day basis and yep. vice versa. The Mises mm-hmm. caucus people who hate the, the Lib socks. oh my God, I would work with a whole state legislature filled with these two sides and I would shut down the police state and the drug war and you know all kinds of really awful stuff there isn't as huge of a difference i think between all these different factions in the lp than what you may think they are when you're embroiled in it constantly all day every day to me it's a breath of fresh air i mean sometimes i do enjoy just the drama of it all where was i going with this i I have no idea you asked me some question i'm like you know what i love about the lp i said tell me something random that is largely irrelevant to <laughs> no, the No, you said what about show? the state politicians? They're terrible yeah, too. Yeah, state well, politicians, are. citywide politicians. They okay. are. But let me tell you, I've had so many aides on a state level tell me that if their boss gets 10 or 12 phone calls on something, on a particular piece of legislation, they're going to start paying attention. 10 or 12 calls, not emails phone call. So when we do activism, we always encourage people, oh, you want to support House Bill 332 in Ohio? You should call whatever committee it's been assigned to. Everyone who lives in Ohio, not out of state, if you call from out of state, they're going to just shut the bill down. But if you live in Ohio, you call every member on the committee personally and you say, hey, my name is so-and-so, I'm in district such-and-such, and and I support House Bill 332. I need to see this move forward because I want to end qualified immunity. 10, 12 calls, and you might see that piece of legislation move forward, at least get a hearing. On a federal level, if you look at the bankster bailouts over the years, you'd get tens of thousands of calls all opposed to it, and they do it anyways. And I think that's the best example I can give. Sometimes you actually can have an impact because politicians at every level are spineless cowards. And spineless cowards generally like to do what makes them popular. So if you can find in one community that ending qualified immunity or ending a prohibition on on magic mushrooms or on ending enforcement of gun control happens to be popular in that area, you actually have a chance to get it done on a state level or even on a local level. So that's my quick take on that. Basically, the smaller, the the lower and more decentralized and localized the the government is, the fewer touches it takes for them to actually move the fewer points of contact it yes. only at city level it probably only takes two or three phone calls yeah in sometimes a lot of these small and well you know, here in la like is new york a different city. story yeah i was gonna say la new york but like most places are not la in new york i live right. in myrtle beach if five phone calls were written to were called to city council people they'd probably take a serious look at what's being yes. talked about um i i actually just asked uh if some people if they want to uh if they have any questions uh for you um, I know that one person asked about if null, if you think nullification is something that could work for, for example, uh, the reason we don't have new nuclear power plants in this country are because of federal regulations that have made it effectively prohibitively expensive, basically made it impossible to to make a new nuclear power plant is do you think okay. nullification is something that could work for something like that? I don't know the process. Uh, the only. Okay. So the thing is, when you when we look at, like, for example, can we apply this anti-commandeering, this, we can call it nullification. Most lawyers will tell you, yeah, this doesn't count as nullification. I don't care. You can call it whatever you want. If we're looking at this, we're going to ban state and local participation or enforcement of gun control, marijuana prohibition, participating in asset forfeiture, 
surveillance. For example, we ban facial recognition in Oakland, San Francisco, Berkeley, yeah. Somerville, Massachusetts, Boston, Minneapolis, Portland, Maine, things like that. This actually impacts the national surveillance state because what they do is as soon as they collect local data, they feed it through fusion centers or something called information sharing environment, ISE, similar to ICE, something else that shouldn't exist. They feed it through that and then it all gets passed around through the national surveillance state and everybody in Boise, Idaho and the FBI and the ATF all has that information. So when you ban the data collection locally, this impacts it on a national level. So we always have to understand how it all plays out. We know, for example, that nullification did work or this type of approach did work in, is it, do you say Nevada or Nevada? I don't know. People it's always Nevada. get mad when I get this. No, trust me. I got booed when I said Nevada. I know. I, I got to be careful. It's so I'm asking. It's Nevada. It is Nevada. Nevada. Okay. So Nevada. in Nevada, they actually saw it as an environmental issue that they did not want Yucca Mountain there, this uh, yes. nuclear waste. Yep. This yep, is yep, the yep. opposite direction. But just to think of how this works or how this plays out. Well, they had to they needed a bunch of water for the drills and the state actually withdrew their drilling permits and they said you can't do this here anymore we're not going to allow it and they kept delaying it it even went to federal court surprising the federal court said you know they can do this you can't force them to give you permits to do drilling so you always have to look at how does this play out what's the mechanism right. to implement this type of thing now if it's something about just like oh i want to get a new power plant online and then to get the power plant online requires a a, a doe a department of energy permit then what right. you're probably talking about is someone just doing it anyway and i think in the climate that we live in today that's still very unlikely especially when it comes to state governments local governments they really 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 want to have permission from the federal government or permission from the federal courts to do what they want to do i think in the long run we may eventually we have to set the foundation for this eventually we have to start creating a climate where people are going to have to do these types of things whether it's on energy or on something else they're going to do things whether or not the courts and the feds agree or not yeah, I, I think I tend to agree with you on that. It's the difference between, like, for example, with something like uh, with the the um, these nullifications and these sanctuary cities, both for guns and immigration. It's they're refusing to cooperate with something yes. where they're having to do something, as opposed to if you want to build a power plant, you need yeah, you need DOE approval. So unless the states are willing to sit there and protect you from federal enforcers that they come in, which is not going to happen, then you're kind of I don't SOL see that, that. happening. I mean, um, I mean, maybe sometime in the future. They did in Ohio in response to the Fugitive Slave Act. There's a great uh, short story, the Oberlin Wellington Rescue. Basically, uh, you know, they wanted to the feds wanted to prosecute somebody for, uh, you know, violating the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. The state arrested the feds. Uh, the, the feds then arrested a bunch of people and it created this kind of stand. But these types of standoffs, I think they're rare. few and far between. They're very rare. I don't think government government people are the ones we want to rely on yeah if you you know so it is very difficult when you have to get approval from the feds when you could actually look at a federal program and say well we're just not going to implement it then right. what happens it just falls to pieces and i think there's not. so many things on the books that i would focus my energy elsewhere to be honest with you right right because you're not going to have 
a standoff between state and federal enforcers over a nuclear power plant. Nah, like, it's not going to happen. Nah. So here are some of the questions that we're getting. Um, for, uh, a couple of people asked if we'll run for president and vice president together. I'd, that's interesting. Um, and um, this then this is, uh, let's see here. Uh, Caitlin Cloven uh, asked if you'll marry them. Uh, they didn't say that, but that's, I mean, they would like you to marry them. I just, I'm letting you know that. Um, and then uh, let's see here. The answer is um, always yes. Always. <laughs> always. And if there are laws against polygamy in your area, nullification. Nullification. Um, uh, let's see here. Uh, what are, what would you say? They mentioned South Carolina, but you could just say at any step. What would you say are like the best and most effective steps to end qualified immunity in a given state, for example? Well, uh, legislation, I think it was uh, Senate Bill 4 that just went into effect in New Mexico. Let me see if I could pull this up here. Sure. I would literally just copy the legislation that was passed in New Mexico. Oh, wow. And um, there it is. It was House Bill 4. It was signed in April of this year by the governor. And this is actually an expansion. There was a similar bill that was signed last year in Colorado, but a little bit more narrow. And basically what it does is it creates a process to sue law government. I mean, because qualified immunity isn't just cops. It's every government agent. Yeah, it's government. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah it's government as a whole. Uh, mm -hmm. But obviously cops are the ones generally with the guns that are blasting people in the face or beating them up. Right. And they're very frightening. And right. um, so – what you have to do is create a process where people can do an end run around the federal court system, because every time this gets brought to the Supreme Court, they just say, eh, we're not going to consider it. And it's been this has been expanding on a federal level since really since 1967 is really where they first created it. But 19, mid 1980s and on and they just keep making it worse and worse and worse. And maybe in three, four decades, the Supreme Court will have some good people there and they're going to turn it around. But what about all of us who are living right now? who want an opportunity to actually be able to hold government people accountable, well, that's where the states come in. And we're talking about Colorado and New Mexico have created a process in state law, uh, the most recent one in New Mexico, House Bill 4, that went into effect where you can actually sue someone in state court. It doesn't have to go to federal court, and there's no qualified immunity as, as a defense for the law enforcement agents. I like it. I like it. Um, here's another one. Um, what are... The next time you see someone without pants, pat them on the backside if they consent. That's not a question. Um, what are, why is there a question mark in You that? sure that's Do not a question? Jack, Jack you, you tricked me there. Um, so what are some exciting lesser known nullification acts that are happening right now across the country? I think no-knock warrants is huge. I mean, obviously you guys all know about this, but right. Tennessee, Connecticut, I'm not sure who else. But this is another thing that really the Supreme Court took a position and said, well, this is OK to do. And then because of the way that the whole system works under the 14th Amendment, that means instead of just applying to the federal government, it applies to every law enforcement agent everywhere in the country. They have free reign to do this. And if you take them to court, you're going to sue in federal court. They're not going to be held accountable. And the federal courts have already said you don't need to knock, <laughs> you know. So when the state starts saying, Let's 
end this on a state level, Tennessee, Connecticut, hopefully elsewhere soon. That's very positive. That's really important. I think banning facial recognition, this actually goes all the way back to the Patriot Act and its successor. They've wanted to implement facial recognition surveillance. I mean, we've seen, you know, the black mirrors of the world. They want this literally everywhere all the time. I mean, feeding everything from your social media pictures into the system to, of course, the FBI's next-gen facial recognition database that went online about a decade ago. So when local communities, again, when they stop collecting the data, it doesn't go into the nationwide system. This is an important part of the process. Uh, Of course, opting out of police militarization programs, not just the 1033 equipment program, but you talk about the training. The training often is generally attached with funding from... uh, Uh, the Department of Justice uh, JAG grant program or the DHS Department of Homeland Security program. It's an anti-terrorism program that they're really teaching cops to treat people as potential terrorists. Potential terrorists, yeah. And it's terrible. Asset forfeiture is really important. We saw a lot of movement on that in recent years. Institute for Justice is probably the best organization, IJ.org, on Earth, working, well, on Earth. <laughs> IJ.org is doing the best work on this. We're number two at 10th Amendment Center, uh, but uh, ending asset forfeiture on a state level is incredibly important. And I think the right to keep and bear arms is starting to finally catch on. I think a lot of the reason is, is because of the switch of who's in office. And so it's partisan-based, but I don't care. I mean... If they've started to ban enforcement of federal gun control in Arizona and Texas and Missouri and elsewhere, this is good. And if they actually stop doing it now, the key is it takes human action. Now, they can ban state and local enforcement of any federal act on the books. But if the people who live there keep following the federal law, it doesn't change anything. There is no nullification. So you can pass all the state or local laws you want on earth, but unless people are willing to exercise their rights. Thomas Jefferson said, a free people claim their rights from the laws of nature, not as a gift of their chief magistrate. So until people start having this mentality, nothing will change. But having the laws on the books can be very helpful, as we've seen on weed, immigration, sanctuary cities, and hopefully some other things. So now we're looking at four or five states starting to take on uh, federal attacks on the right to keep and bear arms. I mean, Trump was the worst in history on federal gun control, literally the worst in history. The second worst in history was also Donald Trump. The third worst in history was also Donald Trump, and he bragged about it. But so many of these people are so partisan and how they, the reason I say he's worst in history, just to clarify, is that he enforced more federal gun control, more enforcement actions than anyone ever. And he bragged about it. August of 2019, he literally said, at my direction, we banned bump stocks, evil, and we had more federal gun control, he didn't say gun control, gun prosecutions than anyone in history. That was the third time in a row, worse than Obama. Now, on the other hand, a lot of partisans like to think that Obama was soft on weed. For example, the right loves used to love claiming Obama's soft on marijuana. He won't enforce marijuana because it made him look bad to the right wing. And on the left, they like saying Obama's soft on marijuana because, well, he cares about you. But the fact of the matter is we know from the numbers that he was also the worst in history on drug drug enforcement, on marijuana enforcement. Bill Clinton in four years did about 50 raids in his four years in office after uh, 96 here, Prop 215 in California. Bush administration comes in. They did about 200 raids over eight years, and they were terrible. Obama in his first four years 
did 270 cannabis raids, federal raids around the country, more than Bush and Clinton in 12 years combined. Worst in history by far. So we have to kind of get out of, I know you asked me about some other, <laughs> other interesting nullification things, but then I'm going on this tirade about no, this partisanship. I think it's important to start teaching people that even when they, and this is where I think libertarians can really, really win the day, at least on messaging, because on the right, they're championing this NRA-backed Second Amendment president who enforced more federal gun control than anyone in history. And on the left, they're championing Barack Obama as, you know, backing down on the drug war, at least on marijuana in the states, when he was also the worst in history. And libertarians can consistently outright the right and out left the left on anything and everything. And I think we're going to find when we see more and more of this, rather than more and more infighting, I think when we see more and more of this messaging, we're going to start seeing more things push forward, not just on militarization, qualified immunity, the drug war, uh, magic mushrooms. Here in California, there's a bill that will decriminalize. Actually, well, it's not the traditional legalized, but it will make legal for possession without commercial sales all kinds of psychedelics. It's already passed the state Senate, and it's going through the next process, Senate Bill 519, this coming month on the assembly side. It's possible that will get to the governor uh, to actually end the drug war on the state level on psychedelics as well. So we're seeing further steps on things that started out as one thing and just continue to grow out of that. that my puns are intended, I guess. <laughs> and it helps for us to stop the infighting. Again, like you said, Barack Obama. Here's another example. Deportations. Barack Obama is oh, still the terrible. deporter in chief. He is still, yes. for all of Donald Trump's, all oh, they're common and they're rapists and some of them are good people. Obama dwarfed Trump when it came to yes. deportations. This is a perfect example. And I, and I say, I echo what you were saying. I actually say this. In fact, I said it in Colorado uh, at that convention. I say it at every convention I go to. I say it online all the time. For all these libertarians that are going, if this faction takes over, I'm quitting the party. And this one going, if this pe faction continues to stay in power, I'm quitting the party. Go talk to online or in person, whoever you think is your political opponent. And instead of talking to them about your favorite podcaster or their favorite podcaster or, you know, this person who's in the LNC or the chair or whatever, go write down of your choice 10 issues, like actual, yeah. not LP issues, actual issues that affect everyday people every day. Wars, inflation, housing, higher education, drug healthcare. Drug war, police dr state, war. surveillance, asset forfeiture. It's Any endless. Write 10 of these things down, okay? Just 10 and ask their opinion about it. This opponent of yours that you are in this bitter yeah. battle for the heart and soul of the party, ask them their opinion on it. You're probably going to agree 90% of the time, if not 100% of the time. And yes, that includes if you put immigration and abortion on it. They're going to agree with you probably 90 to 100% of the time. Get over yourselves. We I would have take, monsters. at this point, at this point, I mean, you know, I, we're having our 15-year anniversary this weekend at 10th Amendment Center. At this yeah. point, because most most of our work, you know, we're working with state legislators, they're Democrats and Republicans. I'm happy when I can agree with them on one issue. And usually they're not even that good on that issue, and we have to push them in the right direction. So when yeah. someone wants to end asset forfeiture— they like they introduce a bill that says, well, you can't have uh, forfeiture without a criminal conviction. We're like, that is great. That's the right principle. But you're not right. addressing the federal equitable sharing program. And if you don't do that, here's how it played out in California, how it played out here, how it played out there. 
and they're always they're never really there even when they're on the right path and i think you make a great point you're going to find 80% even if it's 50% when we're talking about the public at large who oftentimes clamors for more government in response to anything and everything you know you got one side clamoring for more government on this the other side clamoring for more government on that and they often clamor for more government on a lot of times the same stuff and yep, so yep. if you look outside the lp the rest of the world is just, I mean, these politicians are just horrible, horrible, evil. I mean, am I overstating it? No, there's no overstating what mass murderers do to people every single I mean, day. I mean, it, it really it's, is. It, it's, it's, these are, if you are someone in the Middle East, for example, or in Central America, and you are looking at the John McCain's, the Joe Biden's, the Donald yeah. Trump's, the Barack Obama's, the George Bush's, these might as well be the Hitler's and the Stalin's and the Mao Zedong's of their, of their lives. Like, these are the people that make... Middle Eastern children scared of sunny days because those are the days that the bombers do more bombings because there's more visibility. These are the people who are having to send their children off with coyotes where they know that they are likely to be sexually abused, where there's a likelihood, a very high possibility they might die, and an almost certainty that they're going to end up in one of Joe Biden's kitty camps. But that's still better than what awaits them if they stay in Central America where the narco-terrorists that the CIA is sponsoring are taking over their countries. These are monsters. much of this, the 40-year war in yeah. Colombia. I mean, yeah. some people think the war on drugs is just a domestic thing, but this is an imperialist project. Yeah. It yeah. is. Yeah. It yeah. has been the justification for so much surveillance and intervention around the world, not just Colombia and Afghanistan, but all over the place, all the time. And it creates a climate. The U.S. U.S. imperial policy, whether it's on uh, monetary policy or the World Bank, right, or yep. things like the drug war, it's creating so many refugees in the first place, especially backing of dictators and foreign aid that goes to prop up one monster over another. Uh, so I don't know. Where are we going? It is pretty evil. These people are yep. really evil. And to think that uh, one person in the LP. <laughs> I, I understand that party f- infighting is always going to happen, but of having this yeah. opportunity to talk to you and knowing where your audience a lot of times will be coming from, I just implore you to recognize what I deal with every day. And I love everyone that I meet from all these different factions because it's like a breath of fresh air. Oh, yep. Yep. we disagree yep. Yep. on everything economic, but you want to end the drug war and you want to stop surveillance? Well, great. We can be friends. If we had to agree on everything and any- anything, I would never have been able to go to a family Thanksgiving dinner in my life. Not that I go all the right. time anymore. Anyways, right. But I, just think I, of that. I, we have to yeah. find ways to work together, find common ground. The left has oftentimes, the anti-war movement, at least when I was marching in the streets with them, they oftentimes found common ground. You found all this kind of coalition-y thing. And I was listening to Chris Spangles. Uh, do you listen to his We Are Libertarians podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love Chris. Chris yeah. did a really cool episode recently uh, where he was talking about the history of uh, LP infighting. He had all these old codgers talking yeah, about yeah, the yeah. old days and things like that. And, man, I don't know. I'm aging. <laughs> I don't even remember where I was going. Basically... This type of thing has always happened. It's always been around, and people uh, are always going to fight over who is in charge of the party. But at the end yeah, of the yeah. day, whoever is in charge of the LP is way better than the DNC or the whatever the what is the uh, Republican one? 
The GOP, yeah. GOP, yeah. Yeah, no, listen, it, it, here's the thing. I'm an ANCAP, okay? If I can have, you know, libertarian socialists and, and constitutionalists and minarchists and, and classical liberals and other ANCAPs and people that just got here because they liked some, a, a meme they saw about Joe Jorgensen or they voted for Gary Johnson and our ideas sound a little less crazy than the other party— we have to work together. We recognize yeah. that we are headed, we are barreling in a direction that we all hate and it's only going to get worse. We have to at the very least slow down and stop that and start working towards this way. I look forward to a day. I don't even know what, if anything, I disagree with you on. I look forward to a day where we get to that point where we're now having serious policy discussions on the things that you and I disagree on and we can get into our camps and go, no, I think that there should be absolutely no taxes and just uh, voluntary fees. And you go, no, there should be a very minimal tax of five percent and we can argue a, over that let's get there that's a classic harry brown argument i don't know if yeah. you were uh, a harry kind of guy back in the day i am harry brown is the best all respect to dr paul and dr jorgensen and the others in my opinion harry brown is the best presidential candidate this party's ever had i think he was the best communicator for liberty personally i mean maybe He's probably the only human being that when I learned that he passed and I didn't know him personally, like I had exchanged some emails very briefly near the end of his life. But it's the only time that I literally bawled my head off. I cried so hard because it was such a such a loss. And I remember listening to Jim Babka uh, on a show like he was in tears as well because this yeah. man touched people with this message. And I think the message and it's not just that Harry was special. He was special in the way that he communicated, but the message of liberty is what touches people. And he was just so good at communicating it. But he talked about this as well, because, of course, there's always been this kind of and I think Spangle talked about this on this episode with all these old school heads basically saying, like, look, there's always been this infighting. And Harry certainly addressed it very well. Like, of course, there were ANCAPs in the party at that point. And the way he yeah. responded to it, he's like, look. We live under this size of government, whatever the size mm -hmm. of the time. I right, just right, want right. to get it down to the constitutional limits. And if we can even get there, they're going to be much smarter people at that point that can figure yep. out whether or not and or how we could get it down to Go zero. Even further. So exactly. let's we're on the same path. We'll stay on the same path until we diverge sometime in the future or in another lifetime. So in the spirit of togetherness, I do this every time that I bring someone on who comes with a, you know, kind of a constitutional uh, center or flair of, of, of sorts. Uh, Lysander Spooner, uh, he uh, basically uh, opined that the, uh, the reason he believed that uh, the Constitution and government in, in general was unfit to exist, he talked about the fact that uh, the government that they had at that point, and, and this was in the late 1800s, so nowhere near as tyrannical as it is now, but certainly tyrannical even by those standards, uh, he said that the, uh, the Constitution uh, was either uh, intended to create the government that we have, uh, or it was powerless to stop it. Which of those do you think it, it is more, more, or is a combination of those two, and what do you think is the answer to that reality that we're in? Now, if we look at the context of what Spooner had to say and what he was talking about, in some ways, it was worse at that point. Because Spooner, Spooner was an abolitionist, yeah. hardcore. And in his great 1860 edition of the unconstitutionality of slavery, which also included a defense against fugitive slaves— it was uh, another chapter that he added to it that he had written some years earlier, a response 
constitutionally and strategically how to deal with the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which, again, tried to turn everyone in the North into a slave catcher. Basically, if someone claimed that someone was their property, like someone from, I don't know, uh, Alabama, and I'm sorry not to pick on Alabama, came up to Ohio and said, this person, I own them. They're mine. They would go into a fugitive slave type hearing with a commissioner that got paid $10 if they sent them back to slavery, $5 if they kept them in freedom in the North. So there was a financial incentive in the Federal Fugitive Slave Act. And the alleged escaped slave couldn't even provide testimony at the hearing. So this was a very hated act by abolitionists like Lysander Spooner. And he spent about 15 years fighting against that, making constitutional arguments. So in this appendix of that book, uh, No Treason, uh, he ended in in the appendix he talked about, he's like, look, uh, what the Constitution was meant to authorize, nothing. The government of today does not resemble this at all because he at was all. actually yeah. very good at making the arguments over the years on trial by jury on slavery and things like that on the constitutionality of things this guy was a legal scholar of his time but he said like look all these arguments they've done nothing so therefore it is either authorized the government that we live under or it's been powerless to prevent it and i would just right. say i think i've already basically answered that is that words on paper don't enforce themselves and i think a lot of people have Actually, we've all gone to government schools or we've gone to private schools with government basically approval. So we aren't taught the stuff on how to deal with government. I went to a Catholic school when I was a kid. I thought that I was taught that basically all roads led to Catholicism. If I had a problem, go to the Catholic Church, they'll fix it. Then when I went to government school, every time there was a problem, I was taught the solution is government to deal with it. So that's what we're taught from birth to grave through our entire lives. We're not taught that the founders over and over and over referred to the Constitution as a parchment barrier. St. George Tucker in his 1803 view of the Constitution of the United States, this was the first systematic legal commentary on the on the document. It was cited in the Supreme Court for decades. He specifically said, like, look, this parchment barrier hasn't been enough to prevent government from growing. We've seen this already happen. So we're not taught that. We're not taught that the way to keep government in check is to resist it when it does stuff it's not authorized to do. And I think that's the missing part of the puzzle. Now, Spooner actually did encourage resistance in his defense against fugitive slaves. He had a whole section talking about the right to keep and bear arms. And he says, the right to keep and bear arms implies the right to use it, just like the right to have food implies the right to eat it. I mean, this guy was so great at his writing. And he said, like, to be honest with you, he was, and I don't advocate violence, but he was saying, like, look, if someone's going to put someone into bondage, at some point you got to use this right to keep and bear arms, in essence, is what he was getting at there. So he was pretty hardcore, and I certainly understand uh, the, the notion that, like, you can't rely on government to limit government. You can't rely on government to protect liberty, but you also can't rely on words on paper to do anything. They can't start or stop anything. It is really up to human action. And if the market is not on board with liberty, just like I said at the beginning, Samuel Adams, if enough people understood and valued freedom and knew how to defend it, then we would have it. But I think a big part is we're missing both of that. Too many people aren't on board with liberty. Too many people don't value it. 
and very few people know how to defend it. So we've got a lot of work to do. A lot of it is education, and then a lot of the education is doing activism, because there's no way that a right-wing state, a red state like Oklahoma, would have legalized marijuana for any purposes, medical or otherwise. They have medical on the books as of 2018. That wouldn't have happened in 2010. But as they learned over the years that the world didn't come to an end, that passed by a landslide, even in Oklahoma. And I think the more that we show people that liberty works, that liberty is okay in practice, that the people aren't dying left and right because we have more freedom on health care, on, uh, on what we put in our body, how we defend our home and our property— then we're going to see more results in practice in the long run. Because we can tell people to read books all day long. And reading books doesn't change the world. I think it's important to educate people, but we really have to lead by example. Absolutely. Absolutely. Go into, this is, what, this is my, my mantra. Go into our communities, show them that we care, show them that we have the best ideas, and show them that we have a strategy and a way to move forward. And then lead in showing them how we're going to do it. Don't just say, well, when we get elected, we're going to do it. Go to your city councils, go to your state legislatures, go to your county councils, go and advocate for what you want to see and get and encourage others to join you and then get whatever victories you're able to get, then get behind candidates who are going to push and libertarian candidates get behind candidates who are going to push 100% or at least 80, 90% for the things that you want. We have to, it's like you said, human action. We have to take the action. We have to get out there and show that we care the most. And that from there showing that we care the most, we can show that we understand the best, how we got here and that we understand the best, how to get out of it. We know better than the left and the right. Uh, we know, we know, have better ideas than Democrats and Republicans pretend to have. So it's, there's yeah. no, need to argue there's no need to uh to uh lie or pander or water down our message there's no need to to uh, attack people and there's certainly no need to tell them over and over again to read some book you show them our ideas how they work and then you can you can lead and bring them into it so i, I love it listen michael you've been a fantastic guest before We're i let done? you go i yes it's over now go away no before i let you go it's over no it's uh, the show i've already turned it off it's just you and me talking no oh, listen before better, so- before I let you go, before I let you go, how'd I do? No, before I let you go, uh, I want to give you a chance to g- kind of have the final, the, any of your final thoughts. Anything you think we didn't get a chance to oh, talk about? If you are you promote kidding? We'll be here another update. 45 minutes. Good. No, listen. I the love floor you. Is yours. I love everybody who's listened to this whole thing and watched it. I'm very grateful for the opportunity. I feel like we should hang out more often. And yeah, I think uh, I've probably said enough. If you're really interested in learning more about how this all works, the kind of philosophy, the background, how it's playing out, we do an annual State of the Nullification Movement Report, kind of a white paper. It's a free download, 108 pages. The first half of it is basically the history, the response to the Fugitive Slave Act, the Jefferson, the Madison, the resistance, that type of stuff, how it was used in history. And then the second half is how it's being used issue by issue today, from cannabis prohibition to gun prohibition to police state and all that stuff. It's updated as of last year, but it's still really, really good information 10thamendmentcenter.com slash report. You don't even have to enter your email. Just download it. There's Kindle version, Apple Books, PDF, all that stuff. Awesome. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for for joining me. Stick around. We're going to talk during the intro. Folks, thank you so much for tuning in to this fantastic episode of My Fellow Americans. I told you that this guest 
better than every other. I don't want to say that. I have like family members that were guests before. Um, so uh, thanks for tuning into this episode. Uh, tomorrow night, we got two cool things happening. Number one, uh, I'm going to be on Kennedy uh, on a panel. Uh, so I'll be on and off throughout the whole episode starting at 8 p.m. on Fox Business. Also, uh, right here on Muddy Waters Media, my co-host Matt is doing his show, The Writer's Block. His guest is a mystery Michiganer. We don't know who the guest is. Well, I don't know who the guest is yet, but they're going to be promoting the upcoming thing that now I'm going to talk about, which is on Friday night. Uh, you can come and join me uh, at the in Wynn, Michigan at the Isabella County Sportsman's Club. I keep all this in my head. The Isabella County Sportsman's Club. Come out and shoot guns with me at a shooting range. Shooting with Spike. You can do that if you live anywhere near Wynn, Michigan, wherever the hell that is. So come on out and do that. Isabella County Sportsman's Club on Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Michigan time, whatever Michigan time is. Uh, And then on Saturday and Sunday, come join us at the Soaring Eagle Casino and Resort for the Libertarian uh, Libertarian Party of Michigan's convention. Why is it at a casino and resort? Because Michigan is shut down except for the native reservations where they told the state, no, screw you. We're going to stay open. We're a sovereign nation. Nullification. Come celebrate sovereign (laughs) nullification with me at the Soaring Eagle. I know how to parlay into something. Uh, At the Soaring Eagle, the Soaring Eagle Casino and Resort for the Libertarian Party of Michigan Convention. Go to LP, the MichiganLP.org to sign up today uh, on Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern. Uh, come watch the, uh, I believe, third episode now of uh, Cajun and Eskimo from Bayou to Igloo right here on uh, the Muddy Waters Media. Then join us again on Tuesday. Uh, for the Muddy Waters of Freedom, where Matt Wright and I parse through the week's events like the sweet little summer cherubs that we are. Uh, And then on Wednesday, right back here, my fellow Americans, same spike place, normal spike time of 8 p.m. My guest is, who's my guest? Hold on one second. Oh, my guest is David Dahl of Dave's Killer Bread. And we're going to have a really cool conversation. Yeah, he's a a, a, a former, uh, a formerly convicted person uh, who has a, oh, a company. Oh, I get that, that bread. It's actually yeah. really good, too. It's You're okay, interviewing so, that dude? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Next Wednesday, 8 p.m. That's awesome. I'm not even yeah. kidding. This is really cool. Yeah. No, Everything so, else I said was total bullshit, but this is awesome. This is cool. Everything else sucked. But this, so now I'm <laughs> going to get to say that my next guest is even better than you were, which was even better than the other. Like my guest, that, just I, every guest, next guest better is than better the last than guest. Every single guest moving forward is going to make the last guest look like a total schmuck. Okay. The worst Including part this, is when I have to come on like in four weeks again, again. and be like, we're kind of doing a little ebb and flow. We're just thing playing here. that. We're playing that video game the whole time. You, Adderpan. We're going to play Adderpan. We're literally going to play Adderpan, and we're both going to be horrified. We're, our, our viewer count's going to be like seven. I don't care. Like, I just want to do it. But so, folks, so tune in uh, tomorrow for uh, the Muddy wa- for the Writer's Block, or you can watch me on Kennedy if you have cable. Uh, then Friday, uh, you can uh, hang out with me and shoot guns and win Michigan. Saturday and Sunday, come celebrate uh, Native Sovereign Nullification at the Libertarian Party of Michigan convention. Uh, then Sunday at 3, uh, Cajun and Eskimo from Bayou to Igloo. Then Tuesday uh, at uh, 8 is the Muddy Waters of Freedom. And then right back here, Wednesday at 8, at eight my fellow Americans, Dave's Killer Bread. Folks, I love each and every one of you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you guys for watching. I'm Spike Cohen, and you are the power. God bless, guys.
reality, you are my kin. Though I view the world through another's iris. If you slide in my kicks, it might fit. We might just unite and come together, become hybrid. At the least, slightly like-minded. Indeed, the life I've lived brings light to kindness. All you need is a sign. Put a cease to the crimes. Put an ease to the minds like mine. Sometimes darkness is all I find. You know what they say about an eye for an eye and a time with the blind. The blind, who am I to the 